die. Children of the corn, heroes of the morn. And as your life passes by, remember how it feels to be children of the corn. Huh? Beautiful. Absolutely breathtaking. If anyone can identify and Twitter me what that was a song parody of... (laughs) I'll something will happen. I'll have to arrange some kind of prize because I mean, without Googling it, which I have no way of enforcing, but that's probably the most obscure uh, starting song we've had here on Kings of King. But that is a little tradition we sometimes do when we remember to Um, we insert the name of the movie we're covering into song lyrics. I'm Michael Swain (laughs) here with Abe Epperson and we're talking children of the corn. Hey, Abe. Hey, how you doing? Everything's here for you, man. It's just we're all here for you. That's the whole point. What does that mean? Am I making that seem that way? Am I throwing no. my weight around? No, I'm just being a dick. Uh, but yeah, no, it's just like, I don't, I don't, I don't know the song, but I mean, I think you probably knew that. Oh, you mean, it's, well, yes, I revel in my eclectic taste. That's true. And everyone yes. just has to come along and be like, roll your yes. eyes. All right. Grandpa's making a reference to something that no one knows. Are you malachi me right now? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I wish uh, I was 24 at the time of this taping. All right, let's get into it. <laughs> Children of the Corn, uh, the year's 1984, and we are your kings of king. It's good to be yeah. back. It's yeah. good to be back. As, pr- oh, as promised, corms. Children of the Corn. Mm. Have you, had you mm. seen this before or had familiarity with Children <clears throat> of the Corn? I actually had no, like I'd seen that it was a franchise. I knew the covers, but I had not actually ever seen any Children of the Corns. Same. And I actually thought that it was analogous to, like I I was legitimately surprised by several of the plot beats, which we'll get into in the next segment. But I always thought this had some sort of crossover or was a ripoff of or had some thematic connection to the Twilight Zone where the little kid makes everyone disappear into the cornfields. Uh, so I didn't even fully, I was wrong about the premise. And as it shaped up, I'm like, oh, this is what it's about. Mm -hmm. Uh, so let's tell them what it's about in our first segment, which is for all you folks who love sweet, sweet synopses. Let's take a look at Children of the Corn Under the Dome. Our best guess puts the dome at 20,000 feet, sir. Did he just call it a dome? You think we might be stuck in here a while? Under the dome. All right. Uh, I feel like I can take this and blitzkrieg through it, unless you want to. I th- for Kings of King, I think of it as less like like one-upsmanship. We go like, you go. For this, I feel like, yeah, you can start. We can pass <clears throat> the baton. Yeah, if it's yeah, all yeah. you, it's fine. Uh, Let's yeah. just make some just, entertaining just chill, podcasting, baby. Man. Chill dome. Yeah. Chill dome. As long We're as you're the- thrilling them every mm-hmm. second. Mm-hmm. Go. Well, uh, uh, uh go, go, go. we're in the fiction. We're in the fictional town of Gatlin, Nebraska, which is a town that's basically just cornfields and religion. And the <laughs> year is 1980. Uh, it starts on a church. We hear biblical names of townsfolk and children, and they're all praying over a failed corn harvest. Uh, a and drought. we start, yeah. yeah, a drought. And we get we start by being introduced by Joby or Job. Who's a boy and his dad, complete with narration, uh, unnecessary, but I guess, uh, you know, they thought it was necessary. They walk to a diner. All the children 
kill the adults in the town. Uh, and we find out later that it's anyone over 19. So that's why Joby's left alive. And Joby tells us that Isaac takes all the town's children, Isaac being another boy of, I'd say, roughly like 14, 15. Um, you'd think in, that, wouldn't you? You'd think that, wouldn't you? <laughs> we'll talk uh, about that later. Takes all the children into the cornfields, and I we don't know what's going on yet, but that's he, they're doing something in the cornfields in Nebraska. But uh, Joby's dad won't let him like hang out with those because he just doesn't like them. Uh, so he's like kind of considered an outsider along with his sister, Sarah. Um, but now he, but now his dad's dead. So cut to three years later, uh, we're introduced to Vicky uh, played by Linda Hamilton and her boyfriend, Bert uh, are in love and on a road trip. Uh, it's his birthday. She tries to get she, like, they, she tries to basically say, like, let's have sex. And he says, no, uh, we got to get on the road because he's just a newly minted doctor and he's got an internship, I guess. So assumably he's having his own practice. I don't know how doctors work because it was like, I'm a doctor now. And then now he's also doing the thing where he's like, I'm I'm an intern, though. I've been working so hard for four years. I don't really know. How he says he's work. a doctor so many times. It almost seems like it's going to matter at some point that he's a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> almost. Uh, so as they leave, we see uh, we cut back to three years later, Jody and his sister, Sarah, who we learned in the flashback in the original probably has the shining. She draws with crayons the future. Uh, they're talking to Joseph, an older boy, who's going to try to run from the town. And they keep talking about how Isaac and Malachi are going to like kill him if they catch him. So he runs out in the cornfield. And of course, Malachi, who's kind of the redheaded lieutenant of Isaac, mm. Uh, see, and uh, he seems to be like the main enforcer. He's also one of the bigger children, older teen. He's your uh, he's your basic Roger Klotz, your Bobby Butnick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. he's yeah, yeah. He's dunking uh, people's heads in toilets and slitting throats. Out in the corn, we hear some murmuring, and then Joseph gets stabbed in the neck. Joseph walks out to the road only to be hit by Vicky and Bert. Oh, uh, driving blood splatters all over his cute that little suitcase. Oh, it's very cute. <laughs> the uh, actual collision is pretty terrifying. Oh, yeah. I have to say, it's almost laughable because it's so like catastrophic. Well, and they um, say, uh, which is, I mean, the guy's a doctor. He goes like. Oh, he must have wandered out into the road with his throat slit, and, the, and then we hit him. Like he knew. I just don't believe it. Like I just, it's weird. Yeah, he's like, standing dude, perfectly still in the middle of the road like a scarecrow. Yeah, it was very bizarre, but you know, it's, uh, it's a jump scare. Yeah. So Vicky and Bert try to find the town to bring like the dead boy back home or something, and they only find a gas station. Uh, and also, Gatlin is not on any maps. Uh, uh, the attendant tells them to go to the next town and not try Gatlin. There's nothing in Gatlin. The next town is what you want. It's 19 miles away. As soon as they're gone, the children, or a few children rather, I should say, kill the gas station attendant who seems to be talking to the skies and saying that like they, we had a bargain and implies there's some kind of power that's kept him alive these years, these three years at least. But it's revealed later kind of that he's just been giving the children gas in order to save his life. Malachi and uh, yeah, some other children just kill him because 
they he talked to the outsider, which I guess is enough. Um, <clears throat> during these ne- during the next segment, we see more of the day to day of Job and Sarah. They get they're like the outsiders, but they get caught playing like Monopoly in their old house, which Isaac has forbidden apparently fun or going to your old homes. And we see Isaac indoctrinating and giving orders to the town's children, telling them that there's a man and a woman that he calls outsiders, um, that and that the blue man, who's a clearly a cop on a corn, like they've made these crosses, a crucified like cop, um, uh, the he demands their blood. I'm just uh, trying to re- decide if it would be funnier if it were a blue man group guy or Tobias right. in the blue man group. Makeup. Dozens of us. <laughs> uh, there's references to an older evil and like kind of we ne- we hear the blue man, we hear Lord, but we also get the introduction of the big bad, the name of the big bad, which is he who walks, walks behind, behind the rose. Um, Vicky and Bert. Cut back to Vicky and Bert. They try to get to the next town, but they get turned around magically, it seems, and end up at the gas station again. And they find, uh, so they find, they just find their way into downtown Gatling, which of course is a ghost town. Uh, they start look, looking in the houses and find that like everything's three years old. And then they stumble upon Sarah, who does not warn them of anything and only says something like Isaac sucks or something. I forget what the line is, but Isaac it's definitely not. Yeah, <laughs> I but don't Bert think it's does, that. But Bert's like, OK, anything you want to tell me? OK, I'm going to look in town again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he gives Vicky his keys. Uh, the kids watch. Well, as yeah, Bert walks. It's a classic. Yeah. He's like. Scoob, we better split up to cover more ground, essentially. Yeah, and it's also like I think people know at this point with slashers. All right, well, here's keys. Mm-hmm. In case I die, yeah. you still have a car. Uh, but that's actually not what ends up happening. The kids watch as Bert w- walks around the town. He goes to banks, movie theaters. He doesn't see anything. All the while, the kids watch. He sees a painting of Jesus at one point whose face has been painted blue. And covered and in the, corn and shit. And covered in corn. Everything's covered in corn. It's their children. We get of the corn it. People. You're the children of the corn. <clears throat> so the true, the children, including Malachi, walk into the home with where Vicky and Sarah are now, uh, and they attack her and they abduct her. Um, Bert sees suddenly a drawing of a dragon burning a blonde haired lady, which I assume he must be thinking, ah, blonde hair reminds me of Vicky. Where's Vicky? I got to go back. Mm -hmm. So he does. (laughs) That's the, that's the motivation there. Uh, Sarah once again is unhelpful. Once he arrives, he's asking what happened and Sarah says Well, he also gets surrounded by a mob of kids and they stab him once and he fights him off. Mm. Kind of glossed over that. That's not happened yet. Isaac oh, chastises Yeah, Isaac chastises Malachi for acting without God's word. Um tells him he was wrong to kill the gas man and uh in order to stop and he should also stop his like vindictive like whatever assault that he's doing on Job and Sarah. Uh because Sarah, he kno- we now we get the reveal that Isaac knows that Sarah has the sight. In fact, he's been using her drawings to get ahead of anything that the world throws at like the, the town of kids. So he's been using her sight to like avoid detection. 
Uh, back with Bert, he's looking for Vicky. He walks around the corn, and the corn kind of like opens up for him. And that's kind of the first supernatural, other than the sky, that's like the first like really supernatural aspect that we've seen. Uh, we see the children crucifying Vicky. Oh, I see how I got confused because Bert repeatedly wanders away and then wanders repeatedly back wanders, to find Vicky. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we realized that some the skeleton cop slash blue man was probably just an earlier version of a Vicky type person who just stumbled upon town because they do the exact same thing to her with the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're probably just going to kill her and leave her up there. Uh, we're back with Bert. He stumbles upon the church and there's children having some kind of ritualistic drinking of an older boy's blood from they, corn. Uh, Cup made From, of corn. It, it, they made a, it's, a corn it's cob all cup. coming together. Yeah. Uh, and his name is Amos. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> he confronts them about changing uh, the Bible, which I thought was a weird thing to do when you stumble upon a bunch of kids and you see that they're having like holding mass and drinking blood. You're like, what are you doing? You, t- you, you changing the Bible. Uh, and they uh, tell him that they pray to not the God, but he who walks behind the rose. And then the priestess realizes there's a knife on the table and uh, stabs Bert and he bails. Uh, the children start to chase him through the center of town. He hides in what looks like a mechanic shop. Malachi sees him and they have like a really doofy chase. Uh, when he just kind of gets away for no real reason. He just gets yeah. away for no real reason. And he even like takes his time. He like hits mm-hmm. his head and goes like, Oh, <laughs> and then he runs out. But Bert does get away again. This time, Job kind of is like, Psst, Hey, hey kid. over here, mister. Over here, mister. And tells him to, uh, you should hide in this tornado shelter. Uh, somewhere that I assume Sarah and Job hide all the time to There's stay away from There's going to be him. a twister. Yeah. <laughs> so we learned that Isaac was a child preacher. Uh, and now everyone follows him because he's like, quote, good at it, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, I guess a nice touch. Uh, Malachi and Isaac have an argument again uh, back at the uh, child camp. Uh, Malachi takes over. He's bigger than he than Isaac Mutinous. is. And he tells he tells Isaac that uh, they're everybody's tired of your talk. Uh, he wants to give him to the he who walks behind the rose. And he's just more, much more merciless and bloodthirsty than Isaac. Yeah, Isaac's so. like, Hugh walks behind the rose, tells me mm. what to do. And what we're trying to do is build a community. So we got to like build mm. these pumps and get gas and become self-sufficient with the corn. Right. And Malachi's Which, like, you know, no, he who walks behind the rose just wants us to kill everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Frankly, they both have good arguments yeah, yeah. as far as cults go. Uh, but also smart is Malachi's like other sec- second order to all the children is now to cut Vicky down so that they can lure out Bert um, so that, you know, use yeah. it, use Vicky as bait uh, and who they suddenly start calling the outlander. Um, Bert Outlander. learns that. And they crucify Isaac. Not actually yes, crucify because they don't use nails, but they tie him to a cross. They tie him to a cornstalk. So now he's hanging up there while this is all happening. Uh, Bert learns that they took Vicky to a cornfield because finally Sarah's helpful. So Bert, Sarah, and Job leave the tornado shelter after his wounds have been dressed. Hey, he's a doctor. As sunset arrives, they look (laughs) upon the cornfields from a barn and see, I guess, the sacrificial clearing that the um, children have. 
And then at nighttime, he walks over there and he grabs a metal pipe from what looks to be like a generator or farm equipment, plant and payoff, I guess. Um, the children sit waiting for their God to take Amos because we learn that Amos is turning 19 today and that's when they kill you off. Uh, and so Amos is willingly going to walk into the cornfield and let himself be taken by their God. This, as he does so, the sky turns dark and we see something moving under the soil. Kind of looks like a graboid, uh, if you ask me. And Amos is uh, taken slash probably eaten by whatever this monster is. A strange. I like special... to imagine he's eaten by being rotated and like chomped at like a yeah. corn, right? Yeah, it's got to be. <laughs> be corn based. Yeah, we we're we'll, we'll unpack what the corn is. Um, then a special effect. I assume it's what the uh, director was assuming to be like some form of light or some form of. Um, you know, like bugs. I don't know. It's a very old school effect. They didn't have a lot of money for this movie, which is going to become very, becomes very apparent as soon as you start watching it. Um, but it envelops Isaac while he's on the cross and then it explodes. I wasn't sure about what quite, quite what happened to Isaac in that moment. It explodes uh, in a flash of graphics. Yeah. And it, it's yeah. unclear graphics, <laughs> unclear graphics. Uh, so Bert cuts down Vicky while this is all happening and gives a speech to the children telling them that they're nuts and that quote, any religion without love and compassion is false. Malachi. It's a lie. It's a lie. Malachi attacks him. Bert beats his paste 18 ass That's, because obviously he slaps the shit out of him because he's a kid. <laughs> he's a, he's still like he's still got to be like 17 or whatever. It's the right? best and part of the movie. It's like the end of fucking, like fucking uh, death children. proof. Yeah, he's just yeah. he open hand smacks Slap. this kid in the side Several of the head. Times. It's like get the fuck out of here. <laughs> yeah. So and then Bert suddenly shows some compassion by I mean as far as not like normal people. This is no. He doesn't kill this kid. He's a saint. But he throws dude. the knife right near Malachi, <laughs> which like shocks the children because they're like they're only used to like blood being spilt whenever these types of things happen. I assume. Yeah. Uh, and then all of a sudden Isaac walks in and he's possessed. He's a zombie. He's got boils that kind of look like horns. It's crazy. Uh, and he's his voice is deep. He's clearly a mouthpiece for the demon. So Isaac slash the row walker kills Malachi. He just breaks his neck straight up saying that like you, I brought Isaac back and I want your blood too. He wants you so, too, yeah. So the demon is just like doing whatever so it wants. So Malachi was actually right. The demon just wants everyone dead. He just wants everyone dead, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Bert and the children see that and they run uh, and a storm begins and the children take refuge in a barn. Uh, Joe I warned tells you about that twister. <laughs> Jove tells Bert that the blue man tried to kill the monster by working with the still, something about the still. And he had a Bible and, passage in his pocket. Yeah. Yeah. And it implies that the demon will be cast to fire and brimstone, which Vicky concludes is we need to burn the demon. The corn. So with Bert's kind of leadership, he tells the children to go do Goonies. And, you know, grab that and do that. And uh, I'm going to take a hose out, 
uh, with the stills gasoline, although they call it gasohol, which mm-hmm. I've never heard that term before. I thought on Sarah's drawing that it was a cute little kid thing. Like she, oh, she said gasohol like a dumb little kid. But yeah. then the adult and then in then Act the Three says gasohol. gasohol. So, much like uh, a cult, this film is trying to gaslight you into thinking gasohol is a word. <laughs> right, right. Or they're making alcohol out of gas, which I assume. Yeah, or gasohol was a widespread product <laughs> in 1980, that or a product that we're just not aware of we're just not aware of yeah so Bert takes the hose out to the cornfield and the corn stalks start to grab him and Job cuts him free and then the, they hook the hose up to the sprinkler system uh, and they throw a Molotov cocktail but it misses which again this protagonist falls he bangs his head he somehow throws a Molotov cocktail that doesn't break Joe misses in, a cornfield. That's his target. Yeah, a cornfield. It's, <laughs> it's I, I've never seen. I, it's bizarre. But the reason I think that they did it is they wanted Job to have more agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Job runs in to grab it back, while the graboid chases him, and then he gives it back to Bert and says, "Throw it, throw it." And Bert throws it again, He's and like, this time it you works. You got it, missed a second time. You got it. Pick you up the change, it. buddy. <laughs> yeah, you're you good. only got H O R. You're still in the game. <laughs> Yay, crisis averted. They go back to the car, which is magically overrun with corn. And the priestess who attacked Bert earlier is in the backseat of the car. But Vicky slams the car door on her unceremoniously and she's knocked unconscious. And then they're like, let's get the hell out of here. And then it's credits. Wait, you think he's exaggerating, folks. But folks, uh, a kid pops up with a sickle. They knock her out with the car door. His line is, oh boy, literally like that. Oh boy. Then he goes, now what do we do? And Linda Hamilton of Terminator fame says, we'll send her a get well card from Seattle. Let's get the hell out of here. (laughs) And just so it's clear, these people leave a very thriving and isolated child cult in their wake. That's the end of the movie. They, d- I mean, I assume that obviously time will go on and maybe they'll inform the, uh, oh, the there's 11 children of the corn movies. So time goes on. They, yeah, this universe true. has, I, oh. has legs for Ooh. days. <laughs> I, you have my rapt attention. I'm mm-hmm. going to watch these real quick. Uh, I actually don't, I think I'm coming down on children of the corn. I think there's some good things about it. Uh, I just wanted to say that before we dive into, I guess, the next segment. Well, I right? think the best thing is that its acronym is COC. So this episode's a cock cock. Is, oh, cock that's on so cock. Delicious. Yeah. Cock on cock, baby. Super And tasty. Uh, you want to talk about the creative team and the other. I love nothing trivia? more if I could only recall the name of the segment Skeleton Crew. Something in the mist. Shut the doors. Shut the door. Mm-hmm. Cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's why, babe, Abe, I got you, Abe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Jesus okay. Christ. This is where we talk <laughs> about anything about the book or the source material. In this case, it's a short story. Um, how it fits into just the Hollywood landscape, behind the scenes, factoids that are interesting. There's actually quite a bit this time. I have more to talk about, I think, in this segment than probably it, because it's a pretty (laughs) simple movie. But um, yeah, well, we said before before we started taping, it sounded like you had it in a nutshell. So why don't you hit him with the uh, a little story about how the funding for this film went? Yeah. uh, So 
this was a very under budget movie. Uh, if you look on IMDb, it was made for $800,000, which is, you know, still quite a bit for 1984, but definitely not a big movie. You can see it. Uh, and the thing is that the film's budget was originally $1.3 million, considerably more, according to the director. Uh, Stephen King demanded more payment in advance uh, in order for the studio to use his name uh, on everything, everything on marketing, which Stephen King has always been like very, you know, hands on in terms of like, yeah, I like that you say Stephen King's pet cemetery or whatever. He's very mad graining ask. And but he if also you demands money in this film. Like, and they didn't shy away. The cre- it mm-hmm. the words Stephen King are almost bigger than the title in the movie exactly. when it starts. That's like Stephen King's thing. They knew welcome. that they had to market him as opposed to the movie. When they paid forty percent of their budget for it, so they better fucking put the name on there because it looks like an indie movie. It looks yeah. it's low budget. They didn't have a lot. They can do big set pieces either. So the nutshell is uh, the studio was forced to give King. A half a million dollars. Uh, and the studio took it out of the film's entire budget. This was not on the top of 1.3. So now we're 1.3 minus half a million. So $800,000. So basically the studio and Stephen King said, yeah, you can take 40% of the budget of the movie. So obviously the director and you know, everyone attached to the movie was not super happy about that. And it caused a bunch of things. Like there's a description in the book of the row Walker as a green monster with red eyes. But the director decided that because of this budget problem, it let's just, just make had it to force. be some yellow dots and shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it controls a... the weather. Uh, the corn can move. Uh, the earth moves. Stuff like that. Um, your big bad Malachi is killed off technically off frame by a neck snapping sound effect that as you pan away from him because you're just like whatever we can't there's no time like there's no time we got a no country this shit just malachi's dead fucking moving on and And the thing moves though it does the movie is like under 90 minutes and it moves right yeah and there were some there were definitely crafts people who cared a lot like for example i think the most interesting way they present he walks behind the rose considering that they can't show what it was in the story, which is like a giant demon, actual physical form, like Angley's Hulk with red eyes or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, They did that burrowing thing that you described as the graboid. So like they did some cool, innovative, practical stuff. They did that by having actually a bunch of local boy scouts dig a big trench for them. Cause you know, (laughs) that's how you learn about film. Dig this trench for me. Hey mister, you're making a movie. Can we help? And they turned a wheelbarrow upside down, put a bunch of wheels around the rim of it, you know, covered it in dirt and then dragged it with a tractor with a rope underneath. And it looks really cool. And then it's just like glaringly. I think what's I think where you can really see the budget is the clashing of the types of like so like with that, which they called the turtle uh, with that burrowing effect, they tried hard and they nailed it and it looks good. Then the the weird acetate yellow dots that go up Isaac's body, look like they're from a totally different era or different movie or something. And then when Isaac's a zombie, that the makeup effects also feel like they're from a different reality than the glowy dots, or at least it did to me. And it's just like this weird hodgepodge. And I got to say, it really triggered me because it reminded me of, 
Our, uh, the movie we worked on, Kill Me Now, was supposed to be 150. And then when we landed and all the actors arrived, we were on set out and everything, we were informed it had been reduced to 89K budget. And it ended in the same thing. We have some effects, like the van bursting through the wall, where we tried really hard and it looks really good. And then we had the bear where we're like, we can't afford for it to look good, so it's going to look bad. And we just bit it and owned it. And there's stuff in this movie where I think inarguably the whole crew would be like, yeah, there was no money for that shot. That's the shot that we like took a pass on or we took a buy yeah. on. But uh, look at that burrower is pretty good. Or, you know, some of the Malachi stuff is creepy. Yeah, there's some cool stuff in there. <laughs> but even the other than the very first throat slit, which is fairly grisly and involved a prosthetic effect, they, they're usually going psycho style with it, where it's just like mm -hmm. a hand holding a farm implement goes towards a body and you cut away before they would even make contact. And then you just show shots of like, like blood splatter on corn and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. So I don't know how I feel about the fact that Stephen King basically hobbled the movie and it almost feels like he values his own work less because... Like that to me, that is a creative privilege. Do you? That's do, like you have so many movies made of your shit that you're like, this one can suck. I'll just take the money on this one. One for them, one for me. <laughs> yeah, but it's literally because I'm everything, and I like. Yeah, I think it's just an arrogance. Obviously, it's an earned arrogance, but it's just like, don't be a dick. That's my opinion on it. But you know, some people will probably say, you "Got to get that paper," and I'm like, "Hey, that's a fair way to live life." Mm -hmm. Uh, I just hope I never am moved to do that. Um, I think we can all be better, Stephen. Um, I don't know where you were in your life during this time, 19, but people I, worked on this oh, movie. Oh, Stephen. I was like, I was one year from being born. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and this obviously created like a fissure between like the crew and the people who worked on the movie uh, and King. And you kind of saw it in the interviews after. Uh, the screenwriter even sh shots fired. So the sh screenwriter was named George Gold or George Goldsmith. And the uh, they brought him on to write the film because Stephen King did write the original script. He adapted his own work, mm -hmm. but they determined, determined that it was unusable. So um, basically... Yeah, according to IMDb, the entire first act was nothing but Bert and Vicky arguing in the car. Uh, King's draft was reportedly all about backstory for Isaac and the cult and kept the story's uh, original depressing ending where Vicky is killed by the children and Bert is killed by he who walks behind the rose, uh, who punishes Which, the children by, for their failure. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, they uh, and lowers the age of sacrifice from 1918, which I just think is lovely because it's just like, yeah, I'm going to kill you and kill you. And uh, yeah, fuck the deal too. fuck the deal. Well, um, it's uh, not an untypical ending for a Stephen King short story, though, sure. or even yeah. horror in general. Like, I think it's totally valid for a horror short story to end in despair. The demon wins. Uh, but it's, of course you can see how executives in the studio system would want to put a brighter face on the ending. Right. So, but like, I don't think that's what makes it a bad screenplay, but I believe George Goldsmith about the rest that it probably was a bad yeah. screenplay. I don't care that the ending is depressing. That can be good, 
Brazil. I love Brazil, you know, but um, uh, it's from a short story collection called Night Shift, where if I recall correctly, most of the endings are sad. Like that has the one where the guy gets eyes on his hands and kills himself and burns himself alive or whatever. And what's funny is in this movie, in the scene where Bert and Vicky are arguing and driving, the book Night Shift by Stephen King is on their dashboard. So they could have theoretically read the story, Children of the Corn, and known what was going to happen to them. Mm-hmm. In fact, that could be why Sarah, see, Sarah doesn't have visions. She just has read Children of the Corn. Because it's established in this universe. You see where I'm going with this. Yeah. That the story Children of the Corn exists. Yeah. And and how, as we said, 11 sequels. <laughs> um, do we want to talk at all about the sequels or do you think we'd ever cover the sequels on this show? I think it's possible. Uh, I don't They're still think te- immediately. Well, what I'm asking is are they... St- technically adaptations if they're not based on a story oh, but they're yeah, a sequel no, no, no. to something You're absolutely based right. on a story. I would say no. I would say no because we didn't do uh, Lawnmower Man and that is not the same situation but it's like inspired by Okay, is what we kind of dealt with so I doubt we should I don't th- I think we should do direct adaptations. Well can I hit you with a quick improv game? Yeah sure. I'm going to give you the subtitles and you give me a oh, log God. line. Okay, oh, for God, what happens yeah. in that installment. Uh, the sure. Final Sacrifice. That's it? That's all I get? Yeah. Oh, Cop I am 2, The Final Sacrifice. I... What happens in that one based on that subtitle? The Final Sacrifice. Yeah. yeah. I don't get any information if this is like the last one or this is like the fourth one. This is the second one. I'm going in order. Oh, you're going in you're order. You're just oh, pitching a log line. I'm Jesus, like, what's the log are, line for the final sacrifice? They start with the final sacrifice? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's the second one. <laughs> okay. Final sacrifice is about, uh, it's, 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 it predates 1980 and it it's like in the in old timey. It's old timey. Let's say like 1700s and the, it's, uh, they, they put the, um, they put the, he walks behind the rose to sleep uh, for like a hundred years by doing some ritual. Nice. Number three. So like a Salem witch trial right. spring. <laughs> no, no, you don't need, no. Oh, you want to uh, know what it is? Who cares? God, oh, this game. Yeah. Okay. All right. I see what's happening. Uh, Give me the next one. Let's see. Um, bu- 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 <laughs> the plot involves dark goings on in Hemingsford, Nebraska, a town near Gatlin, the original film setting. The people of Hemingsford devi- decide to adopt the surviving children who then rise up and kill everyone in the town. So it's just Final a recapitulation sacrifice? in the next town. Um, yeah, okay. okay. Number three, right, Urban Harvest. Now remember, urban this is 1995, harvest. so urban is a code word for just, black. <laughs> oh my God. I, oh my God. I don't know. The corn stalks start growing in the middle of Chicago and people are like, what's this? Turns out it's <gasps> the children of the corn. Dude, Chicago's not even in Nebraska, which I know you know, but I can't believe you're exactly correct. No. Eli and Joshua are adopted by a family in modern Chicago. Their formal Amish-like clothes from Gatlin and their brimstone prayer at dinner and a suitcase full of corn they bring strike their new parents as unusual. And then they rise up and kill everyone. Probably not everyone (laughs) in Chicago, but uh, Children of the Corn for The Gathering. Uh, the gathering. This is about the first Thanksgiving. Great. Children of the Corn <laughs> Five, Fields of Terror. Um God, that's these are so generic, Michael. Fields of Terror. Um 
Two fields fight over who gets to claim he who walks behind the rose. Here's a nice touch. The next what? entry in the uh, series is Children of the Corn 666. Isaac's um, return. Wait, is it? Wait, is are they both? Is that That's subtitle? one movie. So it's Children of the Corn 666. So it goes Children of the Corn 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 666. <laughs> oh, I see. It's 666. They're doing a little a thing there, like Too Fast, Too Furious. It's a very clumsily done thing, but it's a thing. And then subtitle Isaac's, Isaac's Return. Return. Yeah, I mean, this one obviously is we catch up with Isaac in heaven and he's chilling with God and God's like, all that corn stuff, love it. And then he says, anyway, get back there and keep doing the good work in Nebraska. All right. The rest are too generic to even take you down the row. It's, it's, dude, the next subtitles are Revelation, Genesis, and Runaway. It is amazing how generic these names are. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm, my takeaway. And maybe there's a 2020 Children of the Corn hardcore reboot. I did see that hard reboots, yeah. written and directed by Kurt Vima. Wonder and that's that a, a is that going to be made for TV? I think that's a TV. Yeah, one? it's a, it's a TV one. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Uh, um, that's the story. That's the behind <laughs> the scenes. Stephen King cut a big check for himself and hobbled the production. They tried their best. Uh, it had ten sequels. We got ten sequels to this movie and counting. And that is because it was. Un, you, especially for this time, fairly unusually, uh, like an absolute banger for box office, um, because much like uh, slashers and other horror movies of our generation, where there People were, were like, uh, I don't know, something to see. Yeah, where well, I mean, I was just going to mention like Paranormal Activity and why we got so many of those is yeah. because it took something like. $15,000 to make and it made something like uh, $200 million or, you know, it went, I don't know those numbers off the top of my head, but in this case, in 1984, it was made for 800 K, but it made 14, it made 15 million back. And that is a huge slam dunk for everyone behind everyone who made the film. So obviously they're going to make as they're, they're printing money as far as they're concerned. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that was, that's kind of why it did that. Um, it's kind of amazing that people still find this like cult beloved movie, um, given its budget. But if you do watch it and you kind of put that in the back of your mind, but kind of just try to watch it kind of like in the way that I assume that Michael did as well as I, um, and you haven't seen it, it's actually not that bad of a film. It's just very simple, but it gets, it's finished quick. It finishes quickly. Um, yeah. Last behind the scenes stuff. Uh, John Franklin, the actor who plays Isaac, is actually 24 at the time of filming this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know wow. what's up with that dude, but he looks like he's 12. And then in mm-hmm. the original theatrical trailer, and I think this is hilarious given how much they paid for the name. In the original theatrical trailer that was screened at theaters nationwide, Stephen King's name is spelled with a V. Which is not how he spells. That's so funny. <laughs> that is so funny. So like, just after, no, after not he even paid care. half a million for yeah. the right to Did, say his name. I wonder if it was even intentional. They're just mm-hmm. like, fuck this guy. I don't. I doubt it though, because uh, uh, the one thing I want to mention is that this came out the same year as the Terminator. This came out in oh. March 
Holy Terminator shit. came out in October. And I think that's interesting. That given, makes it look crummy. Like if you put this side by side with the Terminator, <laughs> the Terminator is mean, much, much better. Yeah. <laughs> like I think the budget for the Terminator is what this movie got box Made. office. Probably yeah. not that high. Probably not that high. Uh, but it's much different situation. Um, yeah, that's kind of it, right? It is it. So it. Bill, if you'll come with me, you'll float too. Shit. Like, I don't know, man. It's real short. Uh, it's about a cult I of got kids. Some stuff. They, yeah. If you got stuff about the technique, I'm interested in hearing it because it does feel to me like, uh, yeah, you can just see that it, they had the money they had. They got it done quick. Um, pretty damn straightforward. Like, mm-hmm. the ending, especially very abrupt and cheesy lines like, I'll survive. I've got a good doctor. Or, you know, like we introduce the couple by having her sing some stupid happy birthday song. And you're like, I get it. The couple's likable. They'll be in danger later. It's it's meat and potatoes, man. It's creepy kids in a cult. I have to say that when I my expectations going into the movie were that I thought it was going to be more derivative. Um, like I thought it was like, all right, so creepy kids, they're probably going to be on swing sets, you know, like Nightmare. Yeah. Uh, oh, I was surprised Street. it actually Literally became singing, supernatural. You know? That did surprise me. I did. It did surprise me as well. And I think it I don't know. I keep going back and forth about I like that it does have a monster because I think that that adds for a good finale. But I think uh, like my horror tastes are more like I kind of wish it was just like a really uh, like a a really dark examination of what religion is possible, like religion gone crazy can do. Right. Um, Well, there's a great movie called The White Ribbon by Michael Haneke. Right. That is subtly the kids in the town are punishing the adults for their sins and there's nothing mm-hmm. supernatural about it. And I do agree that that's more horrifying. And I, cause I believe it could happen right. where like and religion makes of... kids think, Oh, we have to be right. Re- I read the Bible myself and it says we got to do this. And they start doing and creepy shit. I that love that. That kind of deflates the terror in this because when you just kind of say like, yeah, but they're like creepy. It's like, well, okay. So I'm disassociating from any connection from, to these kids. I don't see any reality in them and kids I see in the world. Uh, there's no similarities. You know, they're talking like much Old timey preachers. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it's very disassociating and and emotionally I can't get tied to it. I would love a story where it's, you have the setup right there. I think Stephen King's novel probably has more about it because he did very smart things to have like an outsider who's allowed to, um, kind of like look in upon it, upon the cult, but also not be a part of the cult. Like that's a very, great offer for a story because then you get like kind of a narrator who's telling you like oh i have to do this even though i don't believe it i'm given a little bit more leniency about the things i'm able to do because i'm not technically a part of the cult but look at all this crazy you know Right. And that's true. Job and Sarah are allowed to break the rules, like rules like you can't use crayons, you can't listen to music, old timey Mm -hmm. religion rules. And, uh, you know, Malachi slowly but surely is like, when I'm in charge, they will be punished for that shit. And Isaac's Mm -hmm. like, no, 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 they're under 18. So 
they're just they're fine. They're, they're civilians fine. who live yeah. in the town, essentially. Uh, I wish they got into more how the like if you ever uh, played, I forget which Fallout. It's either three or New Vegas. There's a town called Little Lamplighter that's underground. That is a bunch of kids whose parents all died and they're surviving, and they send. Like they don't kill you, but they send you out into the wasteland when you hit that age. And of course, Logan's Run has a society where they kill you at a certain age. Yeah. There's a TNG episode with the same deal. But I do think there's something interesting about seeing kids try to function on their own. Or like you'll see serious movies like Tell No One, uh, where kids, you know, have to goonie it, like have to you know try to navigate an adult world and like become self-sufficient or they're on a desert island or something i like stuff like that i kind of wish it had delved more into isaac's plan and how it ran because uh the kids just seem to be self-sufficient we never see them eat but we never see them procure food or cook yeah we just you know know they seem to have no needs the only thing that we actually that is relevant to the story is the gas. You know, they need fuel yeah, for yeah. running I, power, I guess watering the crops or something. I don't know what the, the generator is really for, but I assume it's that. Um, but there, you, yeah, you don't literally look into, I, in fact, there was f- several shots where I was like, because they made the clothes like creepy and like disheveled it made me think that like a yeah. child army would have to invest a lot of time into making clothes. Um, well, especially cause they're making like Amish style clothes, right? That they, were not so what they like, were wearing when the, in the they flashback. They don't go into town. Yeah. So I don't know how they're getting fed and stuff even, but, um, I imagine the other thing is the movie kind of gets around some of that. Uh, it's more conceptual in a book. So that also gets around it. So you don't, but when you're confronted with the reality visually in the movie, what they do, which is kind of a, it's, I thought it was a bit, pretty big stutter step, which is that they have to move forward three years for story purposes, but they had all the same actors. And especially with the younger kids, especially with Sarah and Job, uh, three years in their life because of how young they are. I mean, they're like six and like eight or nine or something like they're, you know, you move three years and that should be a completely different kid. It's bizarre that just their hair is longer, but yeah, they look the and- same. Yeah copy paste that to all the children in the children of the corn, even right. the extras who are like, yeah, they're also young. Oh, and Malachi's in the midst of puberty, but he looks the same yeah. three years later. He looks the same Get three years later. Here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, although I do get the feeling that Isaac is eternal. Uh, he's mm-hmm. got quite a voice on him too. Yeah. He's kind of captivating performance. I have to say, um, yeah, and it still has some of the core King hallmarks in a good way, like the idea of the heartland of America, flat, 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 corn, 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 but there's something wholesome about it, is a classic mm-hmm. American trope. And we've talked a lot about yeah, how we can he's talk really about good at finding and twisting uh, the things that stand for America and Americana in our minds, more yeah, than I, mean, I think any other horror practitioner, or at I least think it's- more prolifically. By and large, the thesis of this, you know, if if Kings of King needs one, is I've definitely found that over time, realizing how much he does occupy, like, classic Americana. And what I mean by that, because Americana to Americans seems already classical. But, right. like, classic Americana, I mean, like, 
he's he does do a lot of East Coast stuff because that's where he came from. So that's why you see these towns, you know, like uh, keep coming up again, a lot of Maine and stuff like that. But then you get things like Indiana, which is still kind of, you know, like he has Appalachian. He has like Old West ghost towns. He has cornfields in Nebraska. He's he's punching out like the different unique American experiences and saying that's what they look like, that's what I've perceived, that's what we're taught. But the ones like that are every specifically American, yeah. And yeah, so he's he's going for big, broader tropes of American culture. Which, I gotta say, kind of makes this, and obviously there's no way we could have planned this, but it's nicely in accord, I think, with Coen Brothers Brothers, because they also hone in on little bubbles of like dialectic or regionality. And they're very interested in what is uniquely American. And I never thought that we would end up saying the same thing about Stephen King, but that's what he does with horror. That's totally his jam. It's yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that in the case of the Coen brothers, it's more like, uh, taking kind of like, um, he does do like, especially no brother and some of the more, fictional narratives that are bigger and sweeping uh coen brothers take more eclectic versions of americana like because the the people are eclectic Mm -hmm. this is more classical but the coen brothers you're absolutely right still do that kind of thing they do the regionalism thing but you're right yeah they say this is the suburbs here's the suburbs king is doing norman rockwell like the big swings like yeah uh, yeah, well, you know, we're having a 4th of July barbecue on a gla- grassy lawn. There's yep. going to be fireworks later. How could I make that fucking scary? That's sort yep, of it. That's yeah. exactly right. Um, and that, yeah, so just following up with the tropes. Other, also in this movie, if you've been watching or listening. Uh, I mean, the first get, mass murder takes place at a 50s style diner. So there you go. We get characters that are snobby urbanites. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get that because they like make fun of as they're driving in the car. Vicky and Bert are dunking on Nebraska. Uh, we get the concept of the outsider, in this case, the false outsider, which is probably equally common in King's stories. I'm noticing that of the ones we covered, definitely you get the outsider who is the villain or you get the false outsider of people think that the outsider is a villain just for being an outsider. Uh, we get a cast of children, which is, you know par for the course in terms of um, Stephen King. And of course, in this one, the big one, absent parents. There's no parents. Uh, So having absent father or absent parents, uh, which is another trope of King. uh, Those are ones that we see coming up again. So it's pretty classical in terms of like representation of uh, how traditional this is of of a a King story. Um, I did have a thought about this kind of thing. And when we're talking about tropes, I think this fits kind of well, because uh, this one ha- it deals a lot with religion and sometimes he deals with the religion. Um, well, religion is quintessentially American or Christianity is Christianity. Baptism. Also, there's something mm-hmm. in that because this is particularly a Baptist. Uh, it says on the, which I believe is what um, King is. Um <clears throat> Like when, like I started, when I was watching, I started like a broader scoping of King's works has led me to kind of a thing where like he does this time and time again. And I want to see if you see what I'm seeing. My basic conceit is that, uh, those who have the shining are always victims in a story. Yeah. Have you noticed this? Well, right. 
having the shining and being good tends to draw the interest of of like demons. tack or the he who walks behind the rose yeah. or some evil demon that always comes for you pennywise yeah. the dark tower yeah. or rose the hat yeah the shining well. puts you on the i think that's part of the king of verse is having the shining is good it gives you powers but it puts you on the radar of all the evil people with the shining and or yeah and I, elder gods and shit and as early as this novel was i think it's kind of cool like in this movie for example uh it's a little bit more tame because the demon is um kind of just eating whomever but the manipulation aspect and the victimhood actually kind of comes from the cult right uh mm -hmm. in specifically with sarah who has the shining so in this movie isaac uses sarah to preemptively protect the cult so even early on, King was forming ecosystems that manipulate psychic powers and people who have them uh, by evil people or demons or witches. And I think of like Rose the Hat and stuff like that. Like I, I think of he really early on, he didn't develop this. This isn't something like like a comic book where it's like, OK, now let's see what like let's dress up Thor slightly different somehow. What can we do now? It's like, no, it's more of like, no, I want to isolate moments of victimhood that are specific to this interaction that like the shining, the psychic powers deal is very much so uh, what King is like. He was dialed in almost immediately. Well, and dude, I writing. think it kind of philosophically folds back in on itself because what mm -hmm. is more quintessentially an trope of Americana than individual exceptionalism? Like you're special. Yes. You have magic you're special. powers. So that, that is a trope mm -hmm. that is so deeply woven into American culture that sometimes we forget that it's a trope and there's other ways to think. But there is such a thing as collective identity and community identity. But we're very much like Americans. That's, you know, over the world, we used to be called cowboys. But I think individualism is like, right? We we broke away from England. Absolutely. That's in the origin. That's our yeah. DNA as we're rogue. Exactly. And, Opportunistics. Uh, uh, we have the shining. <laughs> that's right. That's our power. We're special, but it draws bad. It's, it means that we Money have to protect ourselves. Our yeah. Uh, yeah. And I also, it's less apparent, although it's not apparent in this movie, it did make me think of some things when we, because religion has been mentioned a few times in this podcast in King films, obviously. Um, I'm thinking of things like desperation, of course. Um, we haven't hit Carrie yet, but that's a big one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that there's this victim, the victimhood and the special boy or girl um, does kind of reinforce the Jesus imagery. I think in Stephen King's stories, the characters with the shining kind of become Christ figures, even though it's never a complete story. Often it's not like they're sacrificed for the sins. In some cases that is kind of literal, but like usually it's someone else who doesn't have the shining who might be the protagonist. And in cases where the person who does have, um, like I'm thinking Dr. Sleep, the person who does have the shining, you know, or one of them is like ultimately a sacrifice. Mm -hmm. uh, but in this movie, the setup's the same, the burden of power and everything like, um, like the, the burden of power, I guess I mean, like uh, if you are Jesus, you have this burden that you have to, you have this like, Oh, you have the shining, the shining but, but it causes burden. It causes problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It's endemic to the nature of, 
Like, as we said, Christianity is a trope associated with Americana. And mm. what's notable about Christianity or relative adopted. to older religions is it's individualistic. It's monotheistic. There's three of them, it's but they're all one, salvation. right? Father, yeah. Son, and the Holy Ghost. But it's just one guy. Um, yeah. And that was a, ra- you know, historically, that's a breakaway from religions that were a community of gods or a pantheon of gods. Yeah. So it's all, yeah. He really, he lives and breathes America. And it's kind of great because when you start to see about like, obviously this is now getting into my political bent, but like when you do see kind of the critiques of America, you kind of do see it's a backwards way of doing this because we should, you know, talk about that more often unless how King does it. Mm -hmm. But I think it's interesting though, of what it does to King's kind of setups in that it's, there's kind of an amazing critique of God and Christ if King intended it. I don't think that he means to say that God is one of these monsters who's manipulating people like Jesus, who are, who are special. Uh, obviously, in I the Christian think he tale, thinks of himself more as Jesus coming up with power. a myth, like a right. new myth about an evil god of death and corn that didn't exist. I don't think right. he who walks behind the rose is an analogy no. for God. No, no, no. And obviously, as you know. King is a Christian. I don't even think he would like if we were if he was in the room, he would be like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. But it does. It's interesting to me still because it does say that like monsters with godlike powers do these things to the meek, but secretly powerful. What does that say about God? Um, you know, it's it's mm-hmm. it's only when God does it is it good. And yet, that just like desperation, the tenet of religion, the good side of God. This mm-hmm. is enshrined in the King of Verse as well. The good right. side of God only works remotely and weirdly like absently through people sarah is like you could argue that god is acting through sarah god graced her with the ability to see the future which is integral to them beating he who walks behind the rose but that's the same as desperation where you're like yeah but he who walks behind the rose came down here and hung out with us in the cornfield how come god never comes down here? well i think it's even (laughs) more damning as more of a like a uh, symbolist, like it's a symbol of it because like, for example, like in this movie, it's imperceptible to me. Who's like kind of more of a layman. Um, it's imperceptible to me, like what the differences are other than like, you know, like someone who believes in God to such an extent, like in, in evangelical and like what Isaac is saying, it sounds and looks the same. It's just the fact that it's a child doing it and that and there's a bunch of children people. and there's, yeah. but there's, and so it's this distortion of the church, but I already kind of view the church as fairly Uh-oh. distorted. Watch out. Yeah. You're like, yeah, but, he, but they're I basically mean, saying the same stuff that you would say at a normal yeah, I'm church. I'm not saying yeah. that. I'm not saying that. And I, and I don't want to disassociate any of our listeners who believe I'm just saying that it is all ritualistic. And then when uh King kind of sets up this like, messed up ritual to examine. I can't help but examine it in the way of like, is King trying to say something about the nature of ritualism, the nature mm-hmm. of like this, this setup where it's like you have one person. I who think talks just because he's saying and everyone listens and it's just like yeah. what they say is God's word because that's literally the setup of some of these churches. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But I think just because you're saying that ritualism can be used to evil ends doesn't mean you're saying all ritualism all is inherently evil for evil. Yeah. I'm also not saying that. Um, but I just think it's interesting that he is displaying it in Children of the Corn. So clearly, yeah, as if to say this is an analog. 
But I don't actually think that well, King is saying that intentionally. George Goldsmith, really, because he rewrote the screenplay, it sounds like, pretty thoroughly. But you're right in the driving scene, you know, they have the thing just like straight out of The Simpsons, Seven Signs of Evil, where they're like tuning the radio dial, it's all religious shit, and they uh, openly make fun of how like parochial and hokey they find Christian and these are dogma. The people who are saved or save themselves, these are the protagonists, the yeah. quote unquote identity characters, are the people who are dunking on this, you know, like. Right. Are they, do they adopt Sarah religion. and Job at the end? Uh, it's unclear. They say like, yeah, yeah, you can come with us for a few days and then Vicky yeah. keeps right. pushing them and it becomes a week and then a month and then they go, ah, ha, ha, ha. And then they walk in and then. Yeah. And then Cause it's interesting. <laughs> Got to bring us back to earth and just remind us that this is all packaged in a movie that certainly has its weaknesses, <laughs> like mainly in the does. terms of missed potential that a lot of films that are fine, but don't transcend. Like, I think a very key craft moment is you just found out that you hit and killed a child with your car and the right. lines and the delivery of the actors. The line is, is he? And then he goes, Oh yeah. Oh, like, yeah. You just realized you a murdered thing. a child. I oh, can't believe yeah. the director on the day didn't go, <laughs> you know, look at me, forget the line, forget the line is, Oh boy, or whatever. Um, like let's meditate. Let's get in this visceral space of your life is ruined. Now you're going to, okay, now give me, you just hit a child with your car. And he goes, Oh boy. Oh, oh this is, this yeah. ain't good. You know, It's like, I don't know. It just felt <laughs> on a craftsmanship level. Like, Yes. Things were phoned in. Yeah, I do think another miss. Uh, it's less of a misstep, more of like context historically. Uh, the lack of agency of Linda Hamilton's. Oh, Vicky she doesn't do shit. Yeah. Is f- hilarious in the way that only like old movies who just like had no concept of like including women into the version of like agency uh of the movie it's like it's Burt's tale absolutely but it's blaring how many times he says go back to the car and such get in the car uh, Vicky. and she just obeys she just obeys and i think that that's pretty hilarious given well, how her character yeah. after this becomes literally one of the top the badass icons of yeah. the uh, also movies. but also the uh the arc of their relationship is she goes you're afraid of commitment at the beginning and at the end he goes i love you vicky and that's that like that's the big emotional growth sarah connor kicks down the door and just shoots all the kids like it's like come on man literally the same year came out literally the same. and little nitpicky stuff like how does why do they call him the blue man? They're old enough to know what a police officer they is. What Come a cop on, looks like. Yeah. <laughs> what, where did you grow? Like, I mean, obviously you grew up in Gatlin, which is in yeah. the middle of nowhere. It's surrounded by corn. There, it's not even on maps, but still, but it, there's yeah. cops. There's gotta be a sheriff. He has a badge. That guy has a badge. Put it together, man. <laughs> and it is hilarious to me how, when you actually physically face off against the kids, they just become an annoyance because like, Mm. Like there's six of them surrounding them and he's still just like, all right, all right, your, your kids back off, back up. You know? Right, right. Exactly. Um, yeah. I just want to quickly get through the rest of it. Cause I have a few sure. more things about shots and such that I thought were very good things about low budget filmmaking that when you're made, it's one of the reasons low budget and horror have always kind of been, uh, bedfellows in a way. Uh, so like Editorially, you can create horror f- moments or false moments 
to obscure the horror or ab- make up abstract the monster or mislead us into thinking something is horrifying is happening, but it's not. These tricks are typically done by like, for example, uh, in this movie, they cut out of the old gas station man opening his door. And as he opens the door, he like gasps and then it cuts to a new scene and you're like, Oh, did he die? You know, and stuff like that. Uh, one of the better ones in this movie is actually right at the top is after we see all of the children kill all of the adults in the town and it says present day, it cuts to, inserts of Linda Hamilton's hands opening up little drawers and stuff like that. And we're like kind of following like, what's this up to, but it's got the music and everything that you kind of make it think. Cause it looks like what we just saw. Maybe it's a kid about to kill another adult because Bert's in the bed sleeping. So we think that that's true, but then no, nope, Oh, we're just, it's just the protagonist. So there's like smart, ch- cheap choices you can do to do those things. And I think that this movie actually does it pretty well. The biggest compliment I can give it is it actually kind of reminded me of stalker, which we watched recently. That's in in terms of zero budget shots that do build tension. You're like, all right, that, that built tension. And there was nothing in it. (laughs) Like you did it with so little, a great tense sequence. And I think one of my favorite sequences in this movie is the, is the quiet where before we realize that like we actually connect the adults and the children, like Bert and the children of the corn, which which is he's walking around town. All the camera is like handheld and obscured by a considerable amount. Like sometimes he's only like, you know, horizontally like 5% of frame because there's like a trash can or something literally right next to camera. So you really do get the feeling that like I am watching you from while I'm hidden. And I think that's uh, some, uh, it's a trope that I think has been used more and more as time has gone on. So that may not sound necessarily as big of a like, oh, that, yeah, I, I, I've seen shots that are like are voyeuristic before, uh, but not as much in a- 1984, right? And when you're on a shoestring shoe budget, um, you got to find a way to make your horror movie your horror, your monster has to have control of their environment. And the, when the landscapes are like banks and movie theaters and it's a ghost town, there's only a few ways to do that. Um, they kind of nailed it uh, and it builds tension. You go like, what are these kids up to? I thought that was pretty cool. The, there's also a shining axe shot. Oh yeah, uh, they do the here's John. They do a little baby version of here's Johnny. <laughs> homage to here's Johnny. Uh, and, there's, uh, and you'll see... Uh, King has a relatively new adaptation called Grass that I'm sure we'll cover eventually where they, uh, I think a lot of the shots to make the grass scary were pioneered in Children of the Corn. It gave me a new appreciation for like, right. Children of the Corn already did that. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of really like, it's, 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 it's a testament to the power of music and such, uh, or soundtrack or not soundtrack soundscape, uh, where it's just like shots of corn, but you're like, well, this corn's up to something. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, it because, also, yeah. It reminded yeah. me of the happening, which is not a flattering comparison, but which they, is amazing. There is a montage is so where they're just, better than that. where it's someone was like, shoot that corn, but scary shoot scary corn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is insane to me that M. Night Shyamalan was like, how do you ho- make like this landscape horrifying? Just show the landscape and put some music on it. This is much better. It does like quick cuts of shots of corn, mm-hmm. very close shots of like Dutch the angles. actual stocks and whatnot yeah. and Dutch angle. And it's just like too much for your senses to take. You're like, holy f- 
settle down corn. Yeah. <laughs> and it's very like they knew that they were trying to do something there. It's crazy to me that like we take someone who we do consider like a master of horror and they should have the same kind of basic job and they, they don't do it. It's, I think it's either a testament to M. Night Shyamalan. I don't think M. Night Shyamalan doesn't know what he's doing. So that's hard to like say, but like, also, there's a reason why he kind of screws up every now and then, like in this case. Yet something like Children of the Corn, which is a laughably cult movie. He's just a dork. Sometimes he thinks something's cool that's just not cool. It's cheesy. But the guy knows what horror does. He like does. How to do horror moments. But some of his He's ideas are so cheesy. They're like corny. Yeah. Most of his problems are his ideas yeah. in terms of like the story, but like he's a very competent, very excellent director. And mm. it's like, you're an excellent director who has seen Children of the Corn. You know how to do that. A bunch of people have done it and rehashed that kind of thing before. It's just weird. It's just weird that in 1984, they, they knew what was up. Uh, and, and now we seem to go back every now and then. And I don't, I know I'm not saying that 2006 happening or whatever came out is now. I'm just saying like, Time goes on and people screw up and are, succeed all the time. It's this is one time I wanted to point out that Children of Corn did something that was rarely, fairly, fairly rare and fairly new. Um, so yeah, that's kind of it. There's it's got some charm, you know, like when Job cuts Bert free from the corn stalks at the end. Job like yells at him or no, uh, Bert yells at him like, you you should go back to the barn, Job, like get out of here, you're a child. And then Job exits and then comes back in the frame and just says, excuse me, <laughs> which I thought was really funny because then mm -hmm. he's like then along with the ride. Uh, he just helps anyway. It's just a funny thing for a kid to say to an adult is just like, are you kidding? You need yeah. help. You dumb dumb. Um, so it has that charm every now and then. It's not a bad movie. Um that said, I'm out of it. Let's find out how not bad Abe really thinks it is mm -hmm. in the acid test we call the stand. Hey, how do you want to do this one? Well, I probably from top to bottom because yep. I think it's in the bottom half, but your little last yep. bit at the end about how much charm it has makes me wonder. But my number one's The Shining. <laughs> That's The Shining. Dr. Sleep. Uh, Stand By Me. Stand By Me. Misery. I think Misery's the third best. Misery. Uh, I think fourth is uh, Dr. Sleep. Dr. Sleep. So we sw yeah. swap, swap. One through four is the strong side that will never oh. be broken up. Yeah. Number five, The Mist. The Mist. It's top five, man. That's oh, the strong side. <laughs> five is the strong side. Yeah. Number six, Dark Tower. Now we get in the middle. I'm going to go with Running Man. I, I, I enjoy the charm of that movie. Uh, seven, Apt Pupil. We also agree there. Nice. <laughs> seven is Apt Pupil. Eight, Christine, the car one. Uh, I think the Green Mile... And we've talked about this. You put before. Christine significantly lower, and I put the Green Mile significantly lower. Number nine is my running man slot. Uh, I'm going to give that to Desperation. Oh, yeah, Desperation was good. Number 10 is thinner for me. Uh, number 10 was Christine for me. I might want to. I did not like thinner. Thinner, lower. Yeah, thinner uh, does very... suck. The more you think about it, the worse it is. Yeah. Um, 11 is Dead Zone on my end. I'm going to give it to Children of the Corn. 11. 11. There you yeah. go. The first piece of new I mean, information. Let's, uh, let's, let's, as you'll be clear, when you look at the 11 through 18, uh -huh. 
yeah. In my opinion, there's not that much. I think Children of the Corn feels about equivalent to Dead Zone to me. I I did not like Christine, Mm -hmm. but Christine was a more like for all the charm and all the things I was like, yeah, it did pretty well for its low budget. Christine had at least like, Oh, that car looks really cool. Uh, I do think that children of corn is a better tale than Christine, which is one of the stupidest car, car stuff. I don't understand. But we are talking about perverting Americana. You got to hit classic fifties muscle cars. Like it's, you know what I mean? He's just just doing the round. Laughable. Anyway, uh, 11 children. It's like the beach that makes you old. It's just a dumb idea on its face. Yeah, exactly. Um, number 12 is it the TV series version for me. Oh, I'm I'm going with it as well. Nice. Oh, good. That shoved us into another sync up. That shoved us into yeah. For me, Desperation's thirteen. Ah, uh, I put the Dead Zone. Oh, cool. That there's a little unit forming it's there. It's a little run there. There's yeah. a little run there, uh, and we'll round out that Rondo with fourteen Children of the Corn. I liked it a little oh, less than Desperation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, this is where I'm gonna put one that you put higher, Dark Tower. Oh, wow. You really don't like Dark Tower. Interesting. Yeah, I really don't. Dark Tower is just, it just phoned it in and everything. It's a hodgepodge. Made me angry. Yeah. 15 Dreamcatcher. 15 is thinner for me. I, I like Dreamcatcher keeps rising up, rising up. <laughs> 16 is <laughs> Green Mile on principle. Uh, 16 for me. I know what you think about it. 1979, Salem's Lot. Oh, yeah. That's my bottom of the barrel, but we're not there yet. First is 17, Maximum Cocaine Overdrive. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe you put that there. I'm going to have to give it to Dreamcatcher. And then my bottom is Salem's Lot, as Abe alluded to. I can't believe it's. you don't think it's Maximum Overdrive. That is a train wreck of a movie. Literally. It, and it's about it's, trucking, another American, like, uh, yeah. I know. He's good. He's good at finding things. He's good. <laughs> Damn you, King. King, you found a thing that's American, <laughs> and you made it scary. Oh, my God. Just when you, you thought it was safe to America again. You put lives in danger. Uh, yeah, I Except sound like a big curmudgeon. what's interesting is there's, I mean, he does do racism a bit in It, but he can't really speak to racism as powerfully, of course, as someone who's experienced it. So, and that is in, intrinsically American as well. And so, it's interesting <laughs> yes, it that is. now we're seeing that being mined for great horror That's films true. like Candyman and Get Out, and so on. I think, I think it might go without saying that when you think of Americana, what we mean is Cracker Barrel, and by Cracker Barrel, uh, we mean crackers. <laughs> Cracker Barrel, I think, also has racist roots, right? I That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm saying it's a bunch of white people. Americana is like white people stuff. Even though that's not exclusively true, it's because the dark history that America has, specifically white people taking over indigenous people, uh, you know, fucking that's the memory of America. We're not going to remember that part. We're going to remember churning butter and stuff. Um, so it's pretty. Uh, has he done evil butter churn? It's pretty bleak. It's pretty bleak. So let's wrap it up for the week. <laughs> and then we'll give you a sneaky peek. Uh, I have a big, big oh. question. Because we yeah, like calling up. our shot. Is it time to dip and do a mini series? Should we decide you that know, in we the talked moment? About, we did talk about this off off camera or off mic. Well, yeah, because Kings of King, unlike Coen Brothers Brothers, there's going to be, you know, potentially 85 or some installments. Coen Brothers Brothers had 17 or 18. This is episode 18 of this show. 
So we had discussed potentially doing a mini series on a different topic and then coming back yeah. to Kings of Kings season two and then doing a mini series on yeah. a different topic and doing Kings of Kings season yeah. three. I am sorry. It's part of it is that I want to stay enthusiastic about King. So I feel like just taking a break is a little good for, mm-hmm. uh, for everybody. I mean, I know which one I want to do, but I don't know. I don't know if we're on the same page. This is the ultimate, the stand. Are we same brain about, I want to do Anders' sons. Yeah. And what is Anders' sons? Just so people. In my mind, that is the totality of the works of P.T. and Wes Anderson in chronological order. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think I looked, it's like 22. That's like, that would be 22 episodes. And then we'd get back to King. Yeah. The other one we batted around was Pixar, yeah, which is all a the Pixar movies. Super good name. Super good name. Uh, of course, we already did Wally as a frame rate. We did Wally as a frame again. rate, and I do, uh, I do think that I'm gonna do a podcast with Cody at some point about cars, about cars just because <laughs> yeah. we had a very lengthy conversation about what the nature of cars and like what the organism of cars is. So there is reasons not to do Pixar's. But, uh, uh, see, okay. So you want my honest uncut truth? Uh, it's that, uh, I like talking about Pixar films way better than I like talking about Wes Anderson films because, uh, I love Paul Thomas Anderson, but Wes Anderson, uh, you know, I have some mixed thoughts about it and I'm kind of in the minority, I think. Um, but I love Wes Anderson. So is that maybe that will make a good podcast or does that make it a bad maybe it'll be a good podcast i just know what i want to do uh maybe we make people decide maybe we make a poll i gotta i have the same issue with the pixar movies because despite how many are amazing i think like two-thirds of them are not that good Mm -hmm. i think like a third Uh, there's a lot of them i don't really care to cover Mm mm-hmm I guess we could skip them. I guess we can do whatever we want. We can want. do whatever we want. Uh, we can make a decision now or we can make a poll. What do you want to do? I th- I think that we should eventually force you to do Wes Anderson because he is, just because he's one of the few auteur directors that has a unique voice that's allowed to make big budget films in our era. Ah, fuck it. Let's do it. <laughs> you win. You win, Swaim. But we could start with a PT. We can switch off. Yeah, no. I, also, wait, how is that? Do you want? I don't even know how the series works. So we we do we cover we do two episodes for every combination. No, my th- no. I just thought we would cover both PT and Wes Anderson, and we'd go in chronological order. So the first thing would be 1988's The Dirk Diggler Story, uh-huh. but then the second thing would be Cigarettes and Coffee 1993, but then the third thing would be Bottle Rocket 1996. Like you just go, you just experience them in time. I don't think I've seen Dirk Diggler's story. It's only half an hour. Oh, okay. We're counting short films. If we're not, then we would start with coffee and cigarettes, which I'd be happy to start with too. You want to do that next time? Um, but are we going to cover sh- uh, short films? I guess not. So if we're not doing short films, then it would either be Hard Eight or Bottle Rocket because they came out the same year. Yes, yes. And you like P.T. Anderson better, so we could start with Hard Eight if you want. Yes. <laughs> We're covering Heart 8 next time? Uh, I guess. This is a lot of new information. I like to this sit. a lot of new. you just throwing yeah. it at me, and I'm like, I, I want to check in with the audience. It's like, is this okay? All right. Fuck it. Make a patron poll. <laughs> 
Never mind. We'll do a poll, okay? Go to patreon.com slash smallbeans and vote for either Anders Sons or Pixar's. Pixar's. And we'll do Hard Eight. Or if it's Anderson's, it'll be hard eight. We'll do or we'll hard do Toy eight, Story. or we'll do Bottle Rocket, or we'll do Toy Story. <laughs> right, that's right. <laughs> so three movies, Good two spread. choices. Yeah, cool. Okay, uh, that's a uh, Kings of King. Yeah, we'll close the book on Kings of King season one. You didn't even know it, but this was a ser- season finale, not a series bum, finale. Bum, bum. Kings of King will absolutely return, and it ends with a cliffhanger because uh, we don't know what we're doing next. The poll will yeah, decide. But we're, oh. we're gonna rotate in another another thing and then we'll get back to King in maybe 18 months. <laughs> cool. All right. We love you. Love you. Uh please go on to the iTunes app and rate us five stars if you haven't. It would mean a lot. Salon. This has been a small beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash small beans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash small beans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the small beans grow into huge giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you.